Amen. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10 this morning, Luke chapter 10. And just uh, it's such a joy to be standing before our church family again. Definitely missed being with y'all last week, but uh, shout out to Pastor Ryan. Just so thankful for him and um, his faithfulness in opening the word in my absence. If you're visiting with us today, I just want to say welcome. Thank you so much for coming to Cloverleaf Baptist. And I know there are many, many good churches here in the city of Mobile, um, but I'm very partial to this one. And uh, hopefully you find here a church that loves and uh, really lifts up the cross of Christ and lifts up the word of God. And hopefully you feel welcome here today. Luke chapter 10 is where we will be this morning in the, in the word of God. I want you just to follow along as I read this morning. We'll be looking at the first 16 verses, Luke chapter 10. Hear the word of the Lord. After these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whither he himself would come. Luke 10, verse 2. Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Carry neither purse, nor script, nor shoes. Salute no man by the way. And into whatsoever house ye enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. And if not, it shall return to you again. And in the same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house. And into whatsoever city ye enter... And they receive you, eat such things as they set before you, and heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. But into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same, and say, Even the very dust of your city which cleaveth on us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be ye sure of this, that the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe unto thee, Chorazin. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which had been done in you, they had a great while ago repented sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, shalt be thrust down to hell. He that heareth you, heareth me. And he that despiseth you, despiseth me. And he that despiseth me, despiseth him that sent me. On July 4th, 1976, I think of that as, well, there's the 200-year anniversary of the United States. Some other great event also happened. On that particular day, a single C-130 touched down on the runway at Entebbe International Airport near Kampala, Uganda. Six minutes later, another three C-130s followed it. They had flown some 2,361 miles completely undetected from the southern end of Israel, flying at just 10 meters, 30 feet above ground to avoid radar detection, as they flew a secret mission to Entebbe. From the back of the first C-130, the hatch opened and a Black Mercedes Benz rolled out onto the tarmac, followed by some Land Rovers. On those particular vehicles, they had the Ugandan flag. But inside, there were not Ugandans. Inside were Israeli commandos led by 
Jonathan Netanyahu, the brother of Benjamin Netanyahu. You say, what on earth are a couple hundred Israeli commandos doing all the way down in Uganda, south of the equator? It's a good question. They were on a mission, and one of the most incredible special operations missions sort of in military history. They were on a mission to rescue 106 hostages who, had been, who were being held by Palestinian terrorists from a Air France flight they had hijacked a few days before. They had flown down to Kampala, where the dictator Idi Amin was quite friendly towards their cause. They were being held in a, in a terminal, and the hijackers had said, we were going to begin killing the hostages if, you don't, if the Israelis don't start begin releasing terrorists from imprisonment. In the course of the next 90 minutes, next hour and a half, the Israeli commandos expertly infiltrated the terminal, killed the terrorists, destroyed a quarter of the Ugandan Air Force on the runway, and flew out with only one commando dying, which was Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Netanyahu. It's regarded as one of the greatest special forces operations in history. It was as audacious as it was successful. They planned the entire thing in 48 hours and was a stunning success. Well, what made the raid so successful? Well, for one thing, it was very carefully planned. They knew what kind of vehicle Idi Amin drove, and they did a mock-up of it so they could pass through the security checkpoints, make it all the way to the terminal. For another thing, they knew what the terminal looked like because Israeli engineers had actually designed and built that particular terminal. And they also knew how many terrorists there were and what they were facing. But for another thing, it had very clearly defined objectives. The objectives were very simple. Kill the terrorists, rescue the hostages, and come home safely. Clear objectives, careful planning, and then all the necessary resources from the right weaponry to the right kind of aircraft down to the mock-up of the correct vehicle. Those of you who have served in the military know that having clear objectives, knowing what the mission is, is key to success. You can't go and successfully complete a mission if you don't know what the mission is. The mission's not clearly defined, it begins to change, and before you know it, the mission's something entirely different that you're not really equipped to do. There's a similar danger for us as Christians living in the United States of America in the year 2021. We can lose sight of what our mission is, of what our purpose is. We're living in a day where there are a lot of competing ideas as to what the mission of the church is. What is the mission of the church of Jesus Christ? What is the mission of Cloverleaf Baptist Church? Tonight we're having our annual members meeting, which maybe seems like a, a, a boring thing where you've got to vote on a budget and deacons, but that, this is really integral to our mission of recognizing what are we doing, why are we doing it, how are we going to be carrying it out, where are we going to allocate funds to carry out this mission. A lot of churches are confused today as to the mission of the church. What are the objectives? What are the resources? What is the plan to carry out the mission? Is the, plan, the mission of the church to transform society and to reinstitute Christendom? Is the mission of the church to alleviate poverty? Is it to enact social justice and uh, racial equality? Is it to promote family values? Is it to elect presidents who may be friendly to, to Christian teachings? What is the mission of the church? It's becoming discouraging to see that so many churches today have bought into a version of social justice and critical race theory and said, oh, the mission of the church is to do these things in society and to try to accomplish these things. It's tragic to see many churches have bought into the idea that the mission of the church is to promote right-wing politics and have politicians come and preach in church and get them elected, losing sight of the main mission. According to God's word, 
repeatedly. Our mission is very simply to glorify God by making disciples. That's it in a nutshell. To glorify God, which, by the way, we have been singing about, and we do that by making disciples, which means preaching the gospel and calling men to repentance and faith and then teaching the word of God so that people who believe in Jesus can grow and then in turn go and make disciples to the glory of God. That is our mission. That's our mission. Now, that mission is going to involve gathering for worship. That mission is going to involve the teaching and the instruction of God's people through the word. That mission is going to involve bringing people into fellowship as as church families. It's interesting to note that when the apostles in the book of Acts went to carry out the mission Jesus gave them, what did they do? They went and started churches. They, They preached the gospel. People became believers in Jesus, and they gathered them into assemblies called churches. That mission is going to involve serving the community. But the main thing must always be the main thing, glorifying God by making disciples. That is our mission. Now, what does that have to do with Luke chapter 10? Luke chapter 10 is something of a preview of the Great Commission. The Great Commission will come at the end of Luke's gospel, at the end of Matthew's gospel, after the resurrection, where Jesus simply tells the disciples, go make disciples of all nations, right? Go proclaim repentance and faith among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Preach the gospel to every creature. Uh, He'll tell them to, to be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. Luke 10, of course, is sometime before the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, It's something of a training mission, not just for the 12, but we're told that there are are 72 others who are sent out. This is a precursor. This is a training run. This is a a preview. This is a rehearsal for the main show. And while our mission is somewhat different in, in a few regards, Jesus is not actually on this earth on his way to Jerusalem. That's the context here. While there are some differences as to how we do it, the essential mission is the same, is to proclaim Jesus and to call people to him. It's very simply, God is calling you and me, every single member of Cloverleaf Baptist Church, to fulfill our mission that's been defined and given to us by Jesus. This is a mission not just for professional Christians. This is a mission for all Christians. This is something that all of us need to get a hold of. So very simply this morning, I want to explore our mission and our message. I think this text divides into those two main prongs. We've got to understand what our mission is, and of course, that mission involves a message. So we begin here in verse 1 looking at our mission, and there's several characteristics of this mission that Jesus gives. Look at verse 1. After these things, okay, what are the, these things? Jesus is now beginning his march to the cross. We're now moving inexorably towards Calvary. We're moving closer to the climax of the book. He appointed 70 others. Now, why does it say others? Well, we pa- go back to the beginning of Luke chapter 9, just back a page or two. Luke 9, verse 1, And he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure disease. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So in Luke 9, we have a similar thing that happens, only initially it's just the twelve apostles that Jesus empowers, he commissions, sends them out to preach. Now in Luke 10, we get an event that is recorded only by Luke, and is that there are a bunch of other preachers that Jesus commissions in addition to the twelve. Let's not get the idea that Jesus only had 12 people who believed in him. We find out in the beginning of Acts there are 120 uh, who are gathered in the upper room. There are other followers, other believers in Jesus. The 12 are the nucleus. They're the leaders. But here we find out there there are others also. Um, That word also telling us, just like he did it with the 12, here are these other guys. 
Now, just a quick note, some copies of Luke say there were 70, and some copies of Luke say there were 72. doesn't make a huge difference. Uh, chances are the 72 is probably the original, because if you're someone copying the New Testament, you're like, 70 is a really common number, right? In the Bible, there's 70 elders, and there's 70 this, 70 that, so you change the less familiar 72 to 70. What's the deal with this number? Well, this is interesting. Jesus chooses 12 apostles. There's another group of 12 in the Bible. There are 12 tribes, right? So there's 12 apostles sort of representing the 12 tribes, representing a new Israel, a new people of God that he is establishing. 72, this is interesting. In the book of Genesis chapter 10, we get what is called the table of nations. It's listing out the descendants of Noah, the the fathers of all the nations of the world. And guess how many there are in the Greek translation of the book of Genesis, there are 72. So the number 72 says this. Just as 12 says Israel, 72 says the nations. So this, even this number is Jesus saying, in the Jewish mind, there are 72 nations per Genesis 10. I'm selecting 72 guys to go out and to preach. What this is telling us is our mission, beloved, is global. Our mission is global. Now, initially here in the, in the Gospel of Luke, they're focusing on Israel. But this is Jesus telling them that in short order, this is not just for Israel. This is for all nations. All nations. This says our mission is global. Our mission is not just Mobile, Alabama. Our mission is not just Tillman's Corner. Our mission is not just the United States. Our mission is the world. We read Psalm 67 to, to kick off the service today. It declares, let the nations be glad, right? Not just glad because they have, you know, Coca-Cola and Apple products, but glad because they are glad in God, because they have had a saving encounter with Jesus Christ, and they see God as their greatest treasure. Even in the Old Testament, that is the mission, is the global glory of God. God is so glorious, He's not a tribal deity. He is so glorious. His worship is not to be contained just in one nation or one ethnicity or one language. Revelation 5 that Sam read for us earlier says that you have redeemed us out of every nation and people and language and you've made us to our God kings and priests. That's the end of the story and it is global. So we're seeing here a a hint of the coming global mission. At the end of the book of Luke, jump over to Luke chapter 24 with me. Jesus is now risen from the dead, and he's telling the disciples, hey, everything, the death, the burial, the resurrection was all predicted in the Old Testament. And then he gives them, this is Luke's account of the Great Commission. This is where this is leading. Verse 46, Luke 24, verse 46. And he, that's Jesus, said unto them, thus is it is written. This is in the Old Testament. And thus it behooved Christ. Okay, it was necessary. There was divine necessity for Christ to suffer and arise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name. Notice this. Among all nations. Beginning at Jerusalem. Ye are witnesses of these things. So Luke 9, he picks 12 guys, sends them out on a training mission. Luke 10, he picks 72 guys to say, the nations. Just 72 nations, 72 preachers. And then in Luke 24, he gives them the marching orders. Training is complete. Boot camp has passed. He's saying, now you go off into battle among all nations. And last time I checked, the job is not finished. Last time I checked, there are still people groups who do not know the name of Jesus. 
Yes, there may be Christian churches in, in every country, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the, the ethne, the different nations, the different ethnic groups that must all be reached with the gospel before Jesus returns. So this is our mission. This is our mission. We're, we're not here to, to, to build yeah, to, to build big cities in enemy territory, we are here to be an outpost of the kingdom of God, to be an embassy in enemy territory, to be an outpost of the kingdom. So back to, to Luke chapter 10, verse 1. There's 70, okay, the global mission. He sends them out two by two. Why does he do that? Is because God knows that we need community. He, doesn't, he, he did not intend for us to live the Christian life or to carry out the Christian mission alone. The notion of someone just going off by themselves and all alone off into the jungle, I'm going to go start churches. We have this model here where it goes by two by two. When Paul does his ministry, who does he have? He has Silas, he has Barnabas, he has Tychicus, he has Timothy. Paul always operated as a team. When he, when he establishes churches, he does not just ordain one big honcho over the church, but he ordains a team of elders. He ordains a plurality because God knows that we need partnership, we need help, we need support, we need assistance, we need brothers in Christ. So he sends them out two by two. He says to go before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. So they're going sort of ahead of Jesus and proclaiming, hey, the king is coming, he's passing through your town, repent and receive him. Now the reality is on the journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, I don't think Jesus went into all of the towns these guys visited, but after his ascension, the gospel would So Jesus is still going into other parts of the world through the gospel as we go as his representatives, as his ambassadors. We go as his spokesmen to declare his name and to call people to believe in him. So this mission we have is global. But here's another characteristic of our mission in verse 2. Our mission, before you begin to think, all right, we're going to do this, we're going to organize, we're going to get a big organization going, it's going to be great, we've got a plan, we've got a strategy. Understand this, our mission is impossible. Look at verse 2. Therefore, he said unto them, the labor truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye, therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Now, when I say impossible, I mean humanly impossible. This is not a mission that 72 guys could accomplish on their own. Reaching the world is not something that we as Cloverleaf Baptist Church can do on our own. Even if we say, let's get all of the gospel-preaching churches together and, and organize, we cannot do this on our own. It is a humanly impossible task. Jesus compares the mission to a harvest. So imagine you've got a, you know, 100 acres to, to harvest and you've got one person doing it, right? Like, that's a big task. The size of the task far outstrips the size of the labor force. It is overwhelmingly large and daunting. There are... Over 7 billion people in our world today, roughly half of them are unreached. That, what we mean by unreached, that's not just unconverted. They don't even have the gospel. They don't have churches. They don't have a gospel witness. There are still thousands of peoples in this world who cannot read the Bible in their heart language. There is a need for translators, for missionaries, for people to go and live among the most remote parts of the world to make Jesus known. But the size of the task is absurdly overwhelming to the size of the labor force. Even on an individual level, you're like, well, I can win one person. Actually, you can't. Someone coming to Jesus is compared to a corpse being raised from the dead. Anybody in the business of raising people from the dead? We do not have the ability to give spiritual life to those who are dead in trespasses and sins. We're like Ezekiel standing before the valley valley of dry bones, and God says, can you make them live? Well, no. 
Every time you share the gospel, it is like you are speaking to a pile of dry bones. The only one who can give life, the only one who can create the new birth, the only one who can bring about spiritual renewal is God. Like we, It is humanly impossible for us to raise one sinner to life. How much more impossible is it for us to reach the world? Right? We, we need God's help. That's why he says in the middle of verse 2, look back at verse 2, Pray ye therefore, okay, because of the size of the task, because of the impossibility of the mission, you need to pray. The impossibility of the task does not drive us back to the drawing board to, to, to come up with a better plan. It drives us to our knees to pray. What this hour most desperately needs is prayer. It's calling out to God. It's intercession. So pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest. So how do we accomplish the impossible task? Well, it begins with prayer. And notice who we pray. We pray the Lord of the harvest. What a comfort to know that the, that the God who sends us is sovereign over the harvest field. He is in the business of saving sinners. He's in the business of drawing men to himself. He's in the business of giving life to those who are spiritually dead. He's in the business of awaking repentance and faith where before there was only unbelief and impenitence. Prayer is an expression of our weakness. When we pray, we're saying, I can't, but you can. It is an expression of our confidence in God's sovereign power. Think about this. How many of you have ever prayed for someone to get saved? I've prayed for people to get saved before. When I pray for someone to get saved, to come to faith in Jesus, what I'm recognizing is I can't do it, and in some way God can. Right? God has the ability to do something in their heart that I cannot do myself. We assume that his will and not their will is what is ultimately decisive. And in the same way, when we pray for the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers, we mean that he's able to raise them up, give them the desire, equip them to do that. Even now, I believe, I, I prayed this morning for God to raise up more laborers. God even now is working in people's hearts and preparing them to go out and preach the gospel. And maybe that's you this morning. You're like, I'm feeling that and I'm sensing that, that God is pushing me and giving me a pull to go be a missionary, or start churches, or there's someone specifically that I need to tell about Jesus. But prayer is also an expression of submission. How hypocritical would it be for me to say, Lord, send forth laborers just as long as it's not me. Right? When I pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, I'm saying, God, not my will but thine. And that might include me. That it might include my kids. So let us not pray for something that we ourselves are unwilling to do. When we pray for laborers, we ought to pray with a here am I, send me mentality. So our mission is defined here in this text. It is global. It is impossible. But verse 3 tells us that it's actually quite dangerous. Go. It's just one word in the Greek. Go. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Well, that's really comforting. Uh, I'm not an expert in, in, in zoology or anything like that. But I'm pretty sure if you had a lamb up against a pack of wolves, we know who's coming out on top in that contest. Lambs are about as helpless as you can get. They're not even like kittens. You're like, well, kittens are so, well, they got those claws. They're, they're, they're helpless. There's no defense mechanism. Wolves have big teeth, big claws. They're really fast, right? They're pretty vicious. He's saying, that's what you're like. You're going out into a world that is hostile. I'm sending you as lambs among wolves. He's telling us, expect hostility. Sometimes we get romantic ideas about the mission. We'll go out and we'll convert the world to Jesus and Christ's great kingdom shall come to earth as kingdom of love and grace. It's not going to work that way. We don't bring in the kingdom. We simply proclaim the king. 
The world is not full of people who are just eagerly seeking God, just waiting for someone to give them more information. Uh, I heard a preacher, there's a, there's a wonderful classic sermon called Ten Shekels in a Shirt, preached by a, game, a guy named uh, Paris Reedhead, I think is the name. Um, anyway, he described, he says, I went off to go be a missionary to someplace in Africa. And he's like, and I expected that I would come and these people would all be seeking God and been waiting for me and I'd come and they would all want to believe in Jesus. He said, when I got there, I found out that the people there hated God. And it would only be by a work of God's grace that they would come to believe in him. Sometimes we get the idea that if we're just nice enough, if we, if we just live the right way in the world, that the world will just sort of welcome us and embrace us as Christians. Jesus says, no, I'm sending you as, as lambs among wolves. People are hostile to God, according to Romans. The natural mind is hostility towards God. Now, verse 16 says that he that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me. It is not us that the world primarily hates. It is ultimately the God we represent. Now, let me just say this. This does not mean that all persecution we get is because of the gospel. Sometimes Christians, and and ourselves included, can receive hostility from the world because we're just dumb. We just do things that don't make sense. We do things that are offensive. We, we make big deals about things that don't make sense to, to, to make a big deal out of. So let's make sure that if we're going to face hostility, it's not because of our disposition or because of our anger or because of, you know, we were offensive to people unnecessarily. Make sure it is because of the gospel. But the bottom, the bottom line here is I'm sending you as lambs among wolves. So as we engage in the king's mission, we can expect rejection and hostility just as Jesus himself endured. But take comfort in this. There's one word in verse 3 that I want you to draw, want you to notice. It's the word I. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. It is the great shepherd who is sending his sheep. This is not a mistake. It is not an accident. It is the, the plan and the goodwill of our shepherd to send us this way. In spite of the presence of wolves, the lambs are guarded by their great shepherd, for he is the one who personally sends them out. What comfort there is in knowing that, that even if we face hostility, even if we face persecution, which thankfully we do not face in this country in any organized sense compared to other parts of the world, that the great shepherd, the good shepherd, is always present and will carry us through. Just expect hostility. Now, verse 4 continues on with this idea of danger. Flowing out of this, because of the danger, he says, carry neither purse nor script nor shoes and salute no man by the way. He's saying travel light, right? The mission requires speed. Now, these are not commands here that are required for all Christians of all ages that it is wrong to have an extra pair of shoes, He's not saying that it is wrong to carry a wallet or to save for the future. Remember the context. Jesus is on his way to the cross. Time is limited. He's on a divine timetable. There's not time to just to, to load up a bunch of stuff and wait six months and, and do all these things, but the, the, the king's business requireth haste. So the normal things that travelers would carry, he says, don't, don't take a purse to carry money. Don't take a beggar's bag to pick up extra stuff along the way. Don't take an extra pair of sandals. He says, don't even stop to, to greet people along the way. Now, why does he say that? In, in the Oriental culture, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, greeting someone was not just a, hey, what's going on? Right Here in the South, someone drives by, you wave at them. Right, You're friendly, like, hey, 
going through the neighborhood, or you might even just do like the cool little nod, right? Or if you're on a, on a Harley, there's like that little motorcycle wave people have. It wasn't like that in the ancient world. It would, you would have to stop, and there was bowing, and there was conversation and negotiation, and it was expected that you get invited to dinner. So if you're on a mission to be like, I got to get to Jericho by nightfall to proclaim that Jesus is coming, I can't get stopped halfway along the way. The point here is this requires speed. Our mission's a little different now. In, in Luke 22, Jesus reminds these guys, hey, remember when I sent you out with nothing? Were all of your needs met? They're like, yeah, this is good. Now pack your bags. So Luke 22, verses 35 to 38, tells us that these instructions were not permanent. This, is, this was like a training mission, right? You send, send the, the troops out into the woods, and you're like, we're going to make this really hard, so when the actual thing happens, you're already ready for it. This was training to say, God will provide for your needs. How? Verse 5, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if the son of peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall return to you again. And in the same house remain eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. He's saying, "Don't, don't pack a bunch of stuff. I'll provide for you through the generosity and the hospitality of my people. The lesson here is to say, depend on me to provide. Don't depend on your own cleverness. Don't, don't depend on your own skill. Depend on me. So he says, travel light. Shed unnecessary distractions to our mission. Don't get caught up in roadside chit-chat. You see, there's always a danger for the church. There's always a danger for us as Christians to lose sight of our mission. To get caught up, as it were, on the roadside chit-chat and the the greetings along the way and the distractions of this world and the video games and and a a bigger paycheck at work and, and let me get an extra shift and let me just get caught up in the here and now and we lose sight of, I've got a mission from the king. Or get caught up in even good things like politics or moral crusades. Those have a place, but they are not the mission. So the mission here is global. The mission here is impossible. The mission here is dangerous. The mission, quite simply, as it said in verse 1, is to go before his face, to to point people to Jesus. That's the mission. Point people to Jesus. Prepare the way for Jesus. Call them to put their faith and trust in Jesus, which really leads us into the second part of our message. The mission, here's the message. The mission involves telling people something. So verse 5 begins to explain a little bit more of what they are to do, how they are to do it. And there's a three-part message that we can sort of discern in this text. Verse 5, he says, in whatever house you go, say, peace, the end of this house. And if a son of peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall return to you again. In the same house remain eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house. So he's giving them instructions how they do ministry. They roll into town, and he says, anybody who is open and receptive to your message, who's willing to let you stay, go stay in that house, enjoy their hospitality. Don't go from house to house looking for someone who's got a bigger jacuzzi or a nicer place to stay or or better food. So just trust God's provision through the hospitality of his people. That's, That's the point. But did you notice a word that got repeated three times? It's that word, peace. Peace, right? He says, whatever house you go into first, say, peace be to this house. Well, there's not a big deal in that, right? If you go to Israel today, the common greeting is what? Shalom. Shalom. It just means peace. 
But there's more going on here. This is giving us a sense of what the message is. We, we, we get, verse 6 says, if there is a son of peace there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall return to you again. Like, what, what's going on here with this? In Luke's gospel, peace is more than just a greeting, but it has theological significance. The word peace is more than just, hey, I hope everything's well with you. I hope, you know, hope you're doing good. No, the idea of peace is reconciliation with God. If you will, our message is one of divine reconciliation. For example, Luke chapter 2, verse 14, Glory to God on the highest, and what? And on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. That's more than just, hey, I hope every, all the earthlings down there are doing well, but it is a declaration of God and sinners reconciled, as Charles Wesley says in his hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And... Luke chapter 7 and verse 50 and Luke 8 verse 48, Jesus performs a miracle and he declares forgiveness and he says, go in peace. It's more than just have a nice day, but it is a declaration that your sins are forgiven and you, are, you now have right standing with God. Acts chapter 10 and verse 36, also written by Luke, give you another example of how this word peace takes on enormous significance. It says, the word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. The message of Jesus was a message of peace. Now, not in the, you know, the, the hippie peace sign kind of United Nations sort of way, but peace as in restoration of a broken relationship between God and sinners, between those who are at enmity being brought together. Now, this wasn't just a message for the 72. This was the message for Paul Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Being therefore justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we find out that this is the heart of the Christian message. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 18 says, And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and given to us the ministry of reconciliation bringing those who are at war into harmony, into right relationship with each other. To wit, namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. How? Not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We stand in God's stead, is what he is saying. We pray you in Christ's stead. Be ye reconciled to God, for he hath made a hand to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. All of that is packed into that little word shalom, that little word peace. More than a greeting, it is a declaration of things are not right between you and God, but they can be through Jesus because God in Christ has taken your sins and put them on Jesus so that you can have his righteousness to your account. That's awesome. That is our message. Our message, when we say to the world, peace be unto you, not just a well-wish, but rather a declaration that there is availability of a right relationship with God, that God and sinners can be reconciled on the basis of Jesus absorbing all of the wrath of God so that he could unleash the righteousness of God. So verse 5, there is a, there is a, an, a declaration, peace be unto you. Now notice back we're back in Luke 10, verse 6. If a son of peace be there, you're like, peace has kids. That doesn't, I don't, I don't get that. This is a Hebrew way of saying someone who is characterized by peace. So say someone is a son of peace is to say they are someone who is predisposed towards or have a heart for a receptivity to peace. 
So Jesus will call some of the Pharisees children of the devil. It's not that they are literally descendants of Satan, but it's to say you have the same character as Satan. Uh, If you look at my son Timothy and then you look at me, you'll be like, oh, he's your son. There's some characteristics that are the same. So when he says if there is a son of peace there, he is saying if there is someone in that household who God has opened their heart to peace, God has done a work of preparation in their souls, so there is a receptivity to be reconciled to God. It says that blessing, verse 6, shall rest upon the household. All right, so we have an offer that meets receptivity and it then rests upon them, comes to live there. It moves in and abides on that particular house. In a person who recognizes their need, a person who sees their unworthiness, a person who recognizes I'm not right with God, a person who sees their emptiness and their brokenness and their desperate condition before God, the message of peace finds a welcome home. Now, I will ask you this question. Have you ever had that happen in your life? Do you have a a relationship that has been reconciled to God? We all have a relationship with God. It might just be that our relationship with God is one of hostility facing his eternal wrath. Or your relationship with God is one that has been reconciled through Jesus, where you have a right relationship with him and you call out to him as father. Now look at the results of this in verse 7. So he says, you go to the house, you say, peace be to the house. If it's a receptive person, they receive that message of reconciliation with God. And in the same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house. So he's telling these preachers, the place where you are received, that's the place you need to stay. Don't go around looking for a better deal. You're not going around just trying to get everything you can. They will be the means by which you are supported while you're in town. The expectation is these preachers would stay a while and they would continue preaching and declaring the good news. But notice the result of these people receiving this message of peace. There's a relationship that's established in verse 7. This is more than just a, hey, we're staying at the Motel 6 and we're getting the continental breakfast in the morning. Eating and drinking with someone in the ancient world, in the ancient world was an expression of acceptance and fellowship and trust. This is more than, hey, you get your meal there because that's just a convenient way to get it. This is to say that that person who has welcomed you and who has entered into a relationship with God is now part of your family, so to speak. So the main point of verse 7 is God will meet the needs of his messengers through the generosity of his people. He's saying the the laborer is worthy of, of his hire. And by the way, that gets quoted in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 18, and Paul regards this as sacred scripture. So this is a, this is a perennial principle that those who declare God's word, those who are, are pastors in the context, are supported by God's people. It establishes a principle. So even here, that principle is established. But the thing I want to lean in on is that these preachers were to enjoy table fellowship with their hosts. They would be marked by gratitude and mutual exception. One commentator said that table fellowship signified acceptance into God's people. All right, in, the, in the Old Testament, when someone came into the community of believers, they, they, they converted to Judaism, they now had the ability to partake of the feasts and the festivals and the Passover. 
In the New Testament, when someone entered the fellowship of God's people and they put their faith in Jesus and were baptized, they could then come to the table, come to the Lord's table, this communion, this fellowship of God's people. What is being described in verse 7 is very real, what we would call today fellowship, camaraderie, community. When we become Christians, we not only get reconciliation with God, we enter into a relationship with other believers. Right? As a result of this peace, this message of peace, it's not just, I now have a personal relationship with God, thank you very much, but we are now brought into a community. This is why every Christian must be a committed part of a gospel-preaching church, because the very nature of the gospel demands it. When we get saved, we're placed into the body of Christ, and it only makes sense that we live that out in a real commitment and in real relationships with God's people. You see, what ties us together It's not that we have identical aesthetic taste, that we all love the same type of music. It's not that we have similar political viewpoints or just a mutual affinity for each other because we're all just sort of the same. No, rather what unites us as God's people is Jesus Christ, is the fact that we've all been reconciled to the same God. Salvation establishes a relationship not only between us and God, but between us and other believers. The early church was not made up of a bunch of people who naturally liked each other. Rather, the opposite, it was made up of people who would naturally normally hate each other. In Colossians 3, verse 11, Paul is describing the renewal that we have in Christ. He says, where there there is neither barbarian, nor Scythian, nor Jew, nor Greek, nor bond, nor free. Okay, the the Greeks and the barbarians didn't like each other. The the Greeks called the barbarians barbarians because they regarded them as uncultured people who just... They just babble. The Jews and the Greeks, man, they hated each other. The Jews would kill a Gentile if they went to the wrong part of the temple. The Scythians, they were a marauding tribe out there on the steps of Russia. All these groups, if they, if they took time to be like, let's look back at all the historical wrongs that have been done and dredge up things that happened hundreds of years ago, they would never have been able to have any unity in the church. Even between slave and master, there's this unity that comes through Christ. The same is true in Galatians 3, 28 and 29. Here's the point. This message of peace that we declare, this this message of reconciled relationship with God has real implications for what we do on Sunday mornings. Do you come to Cloverleaf Baptist Church just because, oh, you know, I kind of like the people who are here, the the, the music's to my likings, and, you know, the, the building's pretty, and, I mean, they got pews and hymn books, or are you here because you love Jesus and you believe there are other people here who love Jesus? That's the glue that holds us together. Right? That's the only thing that will hold us together. So that's the first part of our message. The first part of our message is divine relationship, divine reconciliation. We find out a second part of our message, and it is this, divine rule. He now gives similar instructions. He says, whatever city you go into, go into and they receive you, eat whatever they put in front of you. Okay, important message for, uh, for, for people who are Jewish. He says, don't ask if this meat's been offered to idols. Don't worry if it's kosher. If they're being generous to you, accept it. Good instructions for missionaries today. Um, you talk to missionaries, they'll be like, man, you roll into a village, and then they go and kill the sacred cow for you. You, you eat the thing, right? Um, because they're, they're rolling out the red, they're, they're being generous to you. You don't offend people by, by, by insisting on sort of cultural things that you don't like. But notice what, it, what, what, what he says here in verse 9. When you go into the city, here's what you're to do. You are to heal the sick that are therein, and you are to say the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. So two parts of their mission. You're going to heal the sick, and you're going to declare that the kingdom has come. 
So, so what do these two things have to do with each other? The kingdom of God, what is the kingdom? Right? A lot of people use the word kingdom and just sort of throw it around as an adjective. We're going to do kingdom work and kingdom education and kingdom this, kingdom that. Like, what does it mean? What is the kingdom? Some people want to limit the kingdom to say it's just when Jesus returns and he sets up his kingdom, that's it. Other people want to make the kingdom everything is all here and now, and we're going to establish the kingdom by ending abortion in our city and seeing that Jesus rules over all areas of society. What is the kingdom? Tough concept to get our arms around. In Psalm 145, verses 11 and 13, we find out the kingdom is synonymous with the rule and the power of God. Uh, You can use sort of the parallel structure of these verses. So listen to these verses. Psalm 145, verse 9 says this. The Lord is good to all. His tender mercies are over all his works. We come down to verse 11. It says, They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power. So power and kingdom are interchangeable ideas. Verse 13. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. Often when we think kingdom, we're like, here's a place with boundaries and here's the castle in the middle. We think it's got to be a realm. It's got to be a piece of real estate. But biblically, the idea of the kingdom is God's authority and God's power. So it's less about a realm and more about authority and a rule. Now, who makes up this kingdom? This kingdom is made up of people who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So in Colossians, we find out, that we have been uh, transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into what? The kingdom of his dear son. Jesus, when he was preaching, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In John 3, he says, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom. So the kingdom is made up of citizens who have bowed the knee to the king, who have repented and put their trust in him. It's primarily a spiritual kingdom. And one day Jesus will come back and it will become an earthly kingdom when he rules and reigns over all things. So when they come along and say, the kingdom has come upon you, which is literally the translation. It's not that it just sort of came close and you saw it pass by. But the kingdom has come upon you is to say, the king has arrived and you need to bow the knee to the king so you can be a citizen of his kingdom. It is God's redemptive rule through the person of Jesus. Jesus is the king. The kingdom is a spiritual kingdom that is made up of all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The announcement of the kingdom is simply a demand for allegiance and submission to the king. Now, some people will say, well, that was just something that was going on when the king was on the earth. They offered the kingdom and they rejected it. We're doing something else now. We find out that Paul would tell the church at Ephesus, he says, those of you among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom will never see my face. Again, I've proclaimed the kingdom and the gospel of grace. These are overlapping categories. So how do you enter the kingdom? We enter the kingdom by repenting, by turning away from your sin and bowing the knee to the king and swearing fealty and allegiance to him. So what's the relationship between the kingdom and this healing? Well, over in Luke chapter 11, Verse 20, Jesus says this, If I with the finger of God cast out demons, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. So the casting out of demons, the working of miracles, were a visible sign that the kingdom had broken into the world. It was almost like confirmation. The kings arrived, here's the proof, the kingdom of Satan is being rolled back. So the healings that these disciples did, that these 72 did, 
wasn't like a special power that just going to boom, heal everyone because we were just really awesome. But it was meant to be a proof, a confirmation that the king was, had arrived and that the kingdom was being declared. Now that the kingdom has been confirmed, now that the word of God has been given, with the closing of the, the age of the apostles, these gifts, these unique gifts that God gave for the specific time have passed from the scene. But what hasn't changed is the message. The king is here. You must repent and believe in him. It's an infinitely serious message. It's the greatest of all realities of God himself that the king has come and the decisive action must be taken. There's no room for neutrality. You're either in the kingdom of darkness or you're in the kingdom of Jesus. There's not like a middle kingdom where people say, well, I'm just sort of ruling myself. No, you're, you're either in slavery to sin or in slavery to Jesus. That's it. Those are the two options. This is a demand for immediate and urgent decision. So what about people who reject it? Well, this gives us the third part of our message. Our message is divine reconciliation, peace, that you can have a relationship with God. Our message is one of divine rule that you must submit to him and believe in him. But in verse 10, we find out that there are serious, serious consequences if you don't. But into whatsoever city you enter and they receive you not, they turn you away, they slam the doors in your face, they say, we don't want the king. Has go your way out into the streets of the same. And the word here for streets is not some back alley, but this is like go to the town square, go out into the main highway where everybody will see you. And say, verse 11, even the very dust of your city which cleaveth on us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be ye sure of this, that the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. The opportunity was there. The offer was there. And then Jesus editorializes, I say unto you, it will be more tolerable in that day, that is the day of judgment, then for that city. Not everyone is eager to welcome the king. I remember Herod. Where's he that's born king of the Jews? And Herod's like, uh-oh, I'm king of the Jews. I can't stomach having some, com- some competition, and he tries to kill the baby Jesus. That's the battle that is in every one of our hearts. When we're confronted with the gospel, either Jesus is king or I'm going to try to be king. There's no room for, 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 for both of those things. To, to become a Christian means that Jesus rules, right? That he gets to call the shots, that, that, that I recognize his authority. We don't like to give that up. We like to be in control. So not everyone who receives you, there's some people who reject you. It says you go out in the street and you very publicly wipe the dust of the city off of your feet as a witness against them. You're like, that's an odd thing. I don't get what's going on with that. When Jews would travel outside of Palestine, say they take a trip up to, you know, they're going over to Greece or some other nearby place down to Egypt. When they would come back to the borders of the Holy Land, they would literally shake the dust out of their clothes and off their feet to say, we don't want to bring any of the contaminated dirt from these unholy places back into the Holy Land because God's going to judge them one day. We don't even want dirt sticking to us that might incur divine judgment. We want nothing to do with them. One commentator summarizes this way. This commandment declares a non-responsive Jewish village to be, in essence, a heathen village. Here's people who pride themselves. We're descendants of Abraham. We're God's chosen people. By shaking the dust off their clothes, by wiping the dust off their feet, they're saying, by rejecting the king, you're no better off than those who live in Rome, who worship Jupiter. Your fate will be the same as theirs. There's not going to be preferential treatment on judgment day just because of your lineage. Serious stuff. When we 
proclaim this message, beloved, we must understand that the, the, the Christian message is not our personal preference. It's not our personal opinion. We don't come along telling people, yeah, there's a lot of good ways out here. Here's one of them. Give it a try. We're not saying, hey, this really works well, so give it a try. I, I met a guy last week who, uh, was str- who used to struggle with addictions, and he went and visited a shaman, and he doesn't struggle with addictions anymore. It worked. doesn't make it true. It, it, it changed me. It doesn't make it true, right? We, we proclaim the Christian message not because it works, not because it is popular, not because we like it, not because it accords with sort of our value system here in the West. We proclaim it because it is objectively true. And if you don't believe that it is true, you're not a Christian, right? If you think this is just, well, I don't want to cram it down people's throats because they've got their way, I've got my way, that's not consistent with the Christian message, We proclaim this as true, as a message that everyone must receive and believe if they are to have eternal life. He says it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. And then he goes in verse 13 to talk about places that he had been, up in Galilee. Remember, he had been in Galilee. He's now coming south to Jerusalem. Woe unto thee, Chorazin. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which had been done in you, they would have a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth, and ashes, but it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. So he takes three cities from the Old Testament that were infamous for their wickedness. Sodom, you know, we know about Sodom, and here are these people who try to break down the door of Lot's house and gang rape an angel. Like, that's messed up. Tyre and Sidon were just given over to idolatry. They were just an influence promulgating idolatry over the ancient world. They worshiped multiple deities. They were involved in all kinds of pagan, disgusting practices. If ever there were people who deserved God's wrath, it's Sodom, it's Tyre, it's Sidon. And Jesus says, if you reject the king, you'll be worse off for you. That's stunning. You might be moral. You might be religious. You might be a nice person. He says, you reject Jesus with all of your good works and piety. It'll be better off for the violent men of Sodom. It'll be better off for them than for you on Judgment Day. The the idolater people who bowed down to pagan deities in Tyre and Sidon will have a, a lighter sentence in eternal hell than you will. You who sit through a church service week after week, but you still trust in your good works. You sit through a church service week after week, but you've never bowed the knee to Jesus. How shall you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? If you neglect so great an opportunity to have the Bible in your hands, to have the gospel preached to you, and yet you still trust yourself and refuse to give up your sin? Jesus is saying there will be worse punishment for you than even some of the most vile people in history who did not know the truth. Serious, serious business. We're talking about Judgment Day. We're talking about eternity. Let's not forget that, beloved. As we preach the gospel, we are preaching a message of eternal significance. What's at stake is eternity. What is at stake is forever. Those among whom you walk, to whom you speak, you rub shoulders with and pass on the road, are not mere mortals, but will one day spend eternity somewhere. We've got the one message that conveys eternal life. 
Now, verse 16 gives us a final note. He that hears you, hears me. He that despises you, despises me. He that despises me, despises him that sent me. We stand as God's representatives. Insofar as we accurately declare God's message, as opposed to our own, when the message gets rejected, it's not us, it's him. Now, that does presuppose we accurately declare his message and not our own message. So what do we do here with this? Let me give you some points of application. First one, practice hospitality. You see how much of this was personal? You go into somebody's house, you have a meal together, you declare peace to them. The vast majority of people who are going to be one to Jesus will be one to Jesus through personal relationship. Not necessarily with you just sort of leaving gospel tracks and bathroom stalls at, 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 you know, at Circle K, but you engaging people and building relationships and telling them about Jesus, hearing their questions, giving real answers, finding out their heart. Second point of application, pray for opportunities. Jesus says, pray the Lord of the harvest. Pray for him to give you opportunities. Chances are, if you don't pray for witnessing opportunities, you won't get witnessing opportunities. And when you get them, you won't be thinking about them to take them. So be praying about this. It will shape your values. Third, take every opportunity to proclaim Jesus as the one who's infinitely better. Everybody has a gospel they believe. They have a good news that they believe, a way of salvation they believe. For some people, it might be, if I get good enough education, all will be well in my life. If I make enough money, all will be well in my life. If I can just have a good marriage, all will be well in my life. Everybody is believing some kind of good news. If I can just be healthy enough and have the right diet or if the right people get elected, if we can change the laws. Everybody's got a good news story that they are believing. We have the true and the better good news story. So figure out how to pivot from that. When you listen to people, find out what is it that they value, that they say, this is what matters to me, and show them that Jesus is the true and the better and the right one who demands their allegiance and their repentance. Fourth point of application, travel light. Jesus tells them, don't carry all this extra stuff you don't need. Travel light. Now, I don't mean literally like just you know, travel light, just your phone and your wallet, but I mean, what are the distractions that are keeping you back from this mission? What are the distractions? They can be good things, right? They can be good hobbies. They can be you know, entertainment and family. But what is distracting you? What is holding you back? It's going to be different for you than it is for me, right? So travel light, drop the distractions. And finally, let us pray that God would help us develop an eternal mindset, an eternal mindset, looking beyond the here and the now, looking 10,000 years into the future. This is hard. But with an eternal mindset, we can see what is at stake. With an eternal mindset, we can see that it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Father, send forth laborers. Father, give us opportunities.